song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting episode today, Dave. Oh, as always, of course. But definitely, I think uh, last time we discussed our mutual love of the Royal Rumble, or at least when it's done right. And I think we're going to dig in on some of the uh, meteor offerings today. Yeah, and pretty much all of these were done right, as you said. Uh, Though uh, one we're talking about, I had forgotten how totally decent it was um we will be starting with the 92 rumble we eventually get to the 94 rumble uh surprisingly good rumble at least in my eyes but probably the best rumble uh definitely the most famous rumble as far as i can tell having watched it with two non-wrestling friends uh, fan wrestling fan friends last night that is quite a sentence um they really enjoyed it both in the sense that they kind of remembered it and in the sense that it's an awesome rumble match and it's an awesome match. It's the 92 rumble, which was of course won by Ric Flair. Uh, It is the first one that is for an actual prize and it's the first one that's for the title. Uh, So uh, up until that point, it was basically you won the Royal rumble and you won the Royal rumble Um, And then in 92, because of what happened at Survivor Series 91 and this Tuesday in Texas, which happened right after Survivor Series 91, the title was left vacant and the winner of the 30-man over-the-top battle royal, the Royal Rumble, would be named WWF champion. Yes, indeed. I mean, it was really the highest stakes that they'd ever put, you know, that they'd ever really attached to this gimmick. And as you are apt to say, you know, it really is all about the stakes. That's what makes wrestling work. And I think that's one of the reasons that this was such a memorable rumble, not just flair, but really the stakes that it was for the title. And even that it was for the title and Hulk Hogan didn't win it. Like that's almost a remarkable aspect of it as well. Something that makes it really really memorable so yeah it starts with uh although flair comes in early he's number three it starts with uh the bulldog the british bulldog and ted dibiase which is a fun way to start and then flair comes out okay who's number five As you can hear, uh, Bobby Heenan was not happy about that because Bobby Heenan had brought, as we've discussed in previous episodes, Ric Flair into the WWF as the real world champion. And uh, the argument essentially from uh, Heenan's side is Flair is one of the rightful heir, like has one of the rightful claims to world champion. Therefore, he should be in the same boat as The Undertaker and Hulk Hogan, who were allowed to, were, uh, because of what happened at Survivor Series, were between the 20th and 30th entries automatically. So Flair comes out at three. That pretty much starts the match for all intents and purposes. Like, DiBiase and, uh, DiBiase and Bulldog had kind of went back and forth, but Flair is really the catalyst for the entire match. And and that's something you followed pretty closely, right, Dave? I, uh, I did kind of a close reading of this match. I did, uh, have you ever seen like on the NFL network or some of the fancier satellite packages, they'll do just the camera that's fixed on like one receiver and you can see the matchups, the whole game and everything like that. Uh, I kind of watched the 92 Rumble with that eye on Flair, literally just watching what he was doing with almost total disinterest in, in everything else that wasn't involving him. So I, I, one thing that I want to say before we even dive into the meat of the match, Nick, is I want to talk about the promos that both he and Hogan cut before this match. Because you just described the angle leading up to this really, really well. But the promos they cut, like, they did, it seems that Hulk Hogan did not understand the angle as well as you did. <laughs> because Hulk Hogan's promo before the Royal Rumble was all about how both the heels and the company that Jack Tunney had screwed him out of the title and made him do this whole rumble thing, which was total BS, but he was going to overcome and win it anyway. Like that was Hogan's narrative that I've been screwed by the system. I've been wrong, but I'm going to, I'm going to get it anyway and prove everybody wrong. Whereas on the other hand, Flair, his promo is I'm the man and you got to go through me. He says that to be the man, you got to beat the man line. And he says, I'm the man. And that's really what gave me the idea to do the kind of close watch because I wanted to see after he cut that promo uh, who he really interacted with and what he actually did in that match. Because it's like he goes out and he says, I'm the measuring stick. So I kind of wanted to see what he did with that. 
it's crazy. Having watched rewatched it last night before we recorded, um, like I said, with some fans that are not uh, friends that are not fans. You really like if you focus on Flair, you start to notice he never stops going in. He's constantly getting up every time somebody's in the ring comes into the ring. He's one of the first people to get up and attack that person, and it's almost like. He's doing it not as a preemptive attack to like weaken his opponent, but to establish that like he's not just sitting in the corner and letting things happen. He's not your standard issue chicken shit heel. It's like an it's a, a characterization for him, but it's also like a smart play because it isn't a thing where like he's sitting in the corner and he's not paying attention and he loses focus and he gets thrown out that way. Like he's constantly keeping himself in the match to keep himself in the match. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. That definitely makes sense. And I think that they do a great job establishing psychology wise that he's going to have to earn it. Uh, There's a point early on where it's flair and bulldog and Haku in the match. And just briefly, uh, Haku and Flair are working together like Haku is you know, holding back Bulldog's arms and Flair is chopping him and stuff and it lasts for about 10 seconds and then Haku turns on Flair and Flair has this absolute look of terror in his face like he feels like he's going to die or that he's going to lose right away because Haku's not working with him so I, I love that early in the rumble they tell you that like no 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 Flair's not just going to do the total chicken shit where every other heel is going to you know help him out and they're just going to get haplessly thrown over like it really is every man for themselves, and I thought that that spot got the story of this particular match over, and I thought it was one of the great examples of all time early in the match really getting the rumble itself over. And it's every man for themselves, especially in this scenario where it's from the title, and just because two guys are heels or two guys are baby faces doesn't mean you know that they're, that they're going to play nice and they're going to work together. So I thought that Flair really started off establishing, just as you say, that he, he wasn't going to be, you know, not to call any names, but he wasn't going to be the guy who like lays on the outside of the ring for 20 minutes and then comes back in to do the finish. Of the- um, I, I, Santino Morella, I assume is who you're talking about. <laughs> of course, of course. That, that's, who I, that's who I'm casting shade upon. Definitely. He's ruined the business. Really, really, all the shows were very over. People bought into those. Movies. <laughs> uh, so, the thing with the flair in this match isn't just that he's going after everybody, and that this match establishes early on that like the normal rules of heels versus faces don't apply on any level. In doing that, flair also makes the other guy he gives shine to the other people because you can kind of see who's getting closer to doing something about rick flair like rick flair is from the beginning the star of this match uh well like i said we'll be talking about the 94 rumble in a couple minutes and that is like the diesel rumble but diesel gets knocked out about halfway through or about two-thirds of the way through the match Flair's there from the beginning, and they're talking about Flair the entire time. And it's 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 odd on some. It's very odd because, like we said, the storyline going into this is Taker and Hogan, and to a lesser extent, Sid being like the three three of the real favorites, with Flair thrown in there because Bobby Heenan won't shut up about him. But there's this idea that like Flair is actually full of shit, and like he pretend that he doesn't pull a chicken shit heel thing, but he also like establishes himself as a major star in a way that it had felt like he was just saying he was the, the level of star. He was just saying he was no, like watching this match, you say like even gorilla monsoon throughout the match is like, this is super impressive. Like I don't have shit to say about this. It's really a way to get Ric Flair over almost as a, baby face but at the very least like a different kind of heel than we've ever seen before in the wwf or at least its modern incarnation yeah he is undeniable and and you're right there they they make a point that that you know he wins monsoon over through the course of the match to the you know the the monsoon saying well he's been in there 20 minutes you got to give him credit well he's been in there 30 minutes you got to give him credit and then once it's over an hour uh there's there's a spot where slaughter has has flair like just barely kind of laying across the top rope and he looks like he's about to get eliminated 
And Monsoon like calls it like Flair's going to get eliminated. He goes into the whole like, well, he just set the all-time record. You've really got to give it to him. He's asserted himself as one of the greatest. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's it's a big, like, like I said, it, it's that he's undeniable, even though he is a heel. And it's interesting because after the match in the post-match promo, Bobby and Perfect both brag about, oh, he was all over everybody. Nobody stood a chance. He beat them all up. But like when you watch the match, like I did paying attention to him, he doesn't beat anybody. <laughs> yeah. He like like stiffs Tito Santana with a chop <laughs> and Tito gives him a really nasty receipt back. But like other than that, it's like it's it's just he just chops people. Everything else, it's like he takes a he takes a sick military press from Bulldog. He takes a sick military press from Barbarian. He like lets Piper do all of his like sloppy brawling and he lets Piper basically choke him unconscious until Jake breaks it up. Then he lets Taker basically choke him unconscious until Duggan breaks it up. Then like when Hogan comes out, he just is like, like he, he lets Hogan give him his toss off the top rope and everything. Like all he does is, is take bumps for the important people. It's this crazy blend of like the people who are really important and also the people he has a lot of respect for. Like he works this extended time in kind of one of those periods where there's a million people in the pool. He works his extended sequence with like Greg Valentine, who was his like former tag team partner from his youth. Or like, like I said, Sergeant Slaughter gets this great near elimination on him where he literally has flair like dangling over the rope. There's this great blend of him putting over the younger WC or sorry, the younger WWE stars like Taker and stuff. But then also some of his kind of uh, greatest hits crew from the mid-Atlantic area, he gets it in there too. It's like, he's so frigging giving in this match. It's like all the compliments that we were heaping on Arn Anderson during our Arn Anderson blowout, they really all apply to flair in this match. It's all about making the match and making everybody else. All he does is chop people. That's it. It's all him getting foiled. It's all everybody almost getting him. Yeah, there's, there's one bit where he... I think it's with boss man that comes the closest to him actually like getting over. And he, I think he pokes boss man in the eyes and one of like the great eye pokes in the history of wrestling. Uh, the other person you, you didn't mention, I was hoping you would, uh, cause it's in your notes is a barbarian. I think it's hilarious. Like how much he gives barbarian, but like you said, it makes sense given how far barbarian and he go back. Barbarian was in mid Atlantic with him. Like barbarian, is a, like a, no, I don't want to say a legend might be uh, a bit, but he was a veteran, like a, a, a beloved veteran, I think, with the boys in the back at that point. Yeah, Haku and, Haku and Barbarian were also regarded as like two of the two toughest guys in the business at the time. And he he made sure to make to make sure that they looked good. Yeah, yeah. It's really like an awesome tour de force performance. You actually mentioned the other thing I want to talk about in there. Um, there is a point in the middle of this match where it is Savage, Roberts, it's Roberts, um, fucking Duggan, but uh, Piper. There's, I literally have a note. Can I read you one note? Because you just said Duggan. Hey, here's one note from my notes. Here we go. Taker goozles Flair, hottest thing since Piper, and looks to have him choked out in the corner. Dumbass Duggan makes a save for some reason. <laughs> it makes no, like the psychology of Duggan is off the charts bad in this match. You're just like, why are you doing this? Nothing you're doing. Jake too. It's like I know Jake is just a hateful guy, but it's like Piper had Flair ch- almost choked unconscious. Why not just let it? Like Jake sits there in the corner and teases that he's just going to watch and let it happen. But then he walks over and gives kind of like a weak stomp to kick it off. I was just like, oh, Jake, the master of psychology. Where was it there? Yeah, and it's funny because like that spot when he first comes in because Piper is choking out Flair. He has them in the sleeper in the middle of the ring and. Jake just comes down and he runs down to the ring and kind of realizes what's going on and just slides in the ring. And it's just like, that's between y'all. I'm just going to sit here in the corner. Um, and then he starts attacking Piper and it's like, no, you just had that. That's a great spot. Why would you ruin it? Like, why would you ruin it by getting involved in the actual match? And why would you get involved in the actual match when your entire thing is like, no, I just, like, I'm smarter than everybody. Like you said, it was a weird character moment for Jake, but the initial part is, like, one of my favorite spots in Rumble history. It's just, like, him coming in and being like, that's that's between you guys, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang out in the corner. Is that all right? Sounds good. He, like, basically gives Piper the thumbs up, just like, yeah, it's all you, man. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit. We, we, we hinted, let's talk a little bit about when we get into the deep part of this match. When Once you have Hogan out there. Because I think this match... And the one we're about to 
talk about. Both are kind of known, at least in part, like you said, this is known as the Flare Rumble, but I think they're both known for kind of having kind of funky finishes that like maybe you wouldn't be able to do now. So like, what do you think about this finish, Nick? Uh, fuck Hogan. I think that, yeah, like fuck Hogan. Like he's a bad guy. And they were telling a story. I, I was about to say to me, the unequivocal start, like the, the moment that it stops becoming the Hokomania era and becomes the new generation, like unequivocally, it's a hard break is the the King of the Ring 1993. But to me, the new generation kind of starts at this pay-per-view. It's the first one where it's really like Hogan is not just not the star hero anymore. He might not be a hero. And of course, they kind of changed course immediately after this. But like the, the ending, for those who haven't seen the match, go stop what you're doing and go watch the match. Then come back. Um, okay, you're back. Can I can I read my summary, Nick, for those who don't have the time to do that? Yes. All right, here we go. Sid attempts to eliminate Flair, and Flair takes a sick kip-up clothesline. Hogan gives Flair his bump off the top as the 30th man enters. Flair powders, but Hogan follows him and gives him a vertical suplex on the floor, which would look sick in a match today. Uh, they stagger back into the ring, and there's some sweaty spot calling before Flair chops Hogan's throat, causing Hulk to tease a full Hulk up which he doesn't do, instead running away to help get Warlord out. Hogan has Flair in the corner and rakes his face. Kevin Dunn calls for a series of 180-degree rule obliterating shots as we get to the final three. Flair gets shot into the corner and goes to do his flip. He doesn't, though. His weight's all wrong. And Hogan awkwardly pushes him onto the apron. Sid behind Hogan. Hogan over the top. Hogan flips shit and grabs Sid's arm. Sid over the top. Flair wins. Hogan and Sid are both pissed and have a big pull apart. Perfect grabs Flair and drags him to the back. Yeah. Uh, so there's like 18 things wrong with that, but most notably the idea, and this is something you will see later on Hogan. And it, it happens in the promo before the match too. Hogan's a bad guy. People. He's not a good guy. He's a bad guy. And this is like the definitive example of it. He literally doesn't like that the thing he does at every single Royal Rumble gets done to him. So he cheats to make sure that his guy, who's supposed to be his friend, but I understand there's no friends, loses the match, despite the fact that Hogan now can't win the match. In other words, Hogan is literally screwing over his friend so that the guy who screwed him over to take the title off of him can get the title. Like He's just a bad person. It's, it's, I said it too, like at the promo at the beginning, he's literally like, everybody is screwing me. Everybody's out to get me. He, his, his whole pre-match promo is this whole persecution complex. And then compare that to Flair, who says, I'm going to go out there and prove that I'm the man and winning this match has to go through me. It's like you couldn't get a more stark contrast. But at the same time, as you say, it's like Hogan's like weirdly definitely still supposed to be very much a baby face, like in spite of SummerSlam and this Tuesday in Texas and all the like transparently shady stuff that's like shining through here. It, it, it's just like that, that flair just cuts what is basically an earnest baby face promo and really delivers. It's, it's kind of ironic. This is like the quintessential example of the time in wrestling history, uh, in WWF history where Vince couldn't see the forest from the trees. He was like, well, we need Hogan because Hogan's important. But Hogan only wants to work. The problem with Hogan is he's like, an, and I mean this in the nicest way possible, uh, he's like Peyton Manning in the sense you have to build your entire offense around him and he makes all of the decisions. And that works. <coughs> Nasty boys in TNA. <coughs> and that. Sorry, I had something stuck in my throat. I think it was something nasty. <laughs> and. It's kind of like a, he's a great quarterback, but like once he started to age out of being a guy who could sell out an arena by himself, you have to take him off the team. You can't keep him around in any real capacity. And they were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place with Hogan, where Hogan was making all of these decisions. Like he fucking main events with Sid WrestleMania 8 instead of Flair against Flair or against Savage or against anybody. You know, in a non-title match. One thing that struck me as really weird in this match is, is like, 
if you've ever watched the like uh like the the hulk hogan in japan for example like there used to be on youtube the footage of the super show that they did with new japan in 91 or 92 or whatever it was when he wrestled stan hansen famously uh, it's a really really great match um uh, but throughout that match hogan does his whole kind of um doing the good wrestling for the japanese uh, crowd thing like the first move that he does in the match is like an alberto del rio style cross arm breaker and stuff but i felt like in this match he seemed like when he was matched up with flair he was like really trying to do good wrestling stuff i gave him a lot of credit there was one point where um he gave flair his 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 lariat like his clo his clothesline out of the corner which is his finish in japan and it looked like really solid and they did that suplex on the floor that looked really solid and there was one point where they were coming out of a corner and he, he like flair gave him a snapmare and hulk, hulk hogan took this like perfect over the top ideal form snapmare like right onto his butt like didn't cheat jumping over to the side like a lot of people do like when hogan and flair were locked up it seemed like hogan like was really trying to prove something in a way that like i don't even see when you watch the matches they later had in wcw and that was actually one of the kind of subtle gems that I found in this rumble doing this kind of close viewing. Yeah. Hogan. How do I put this? Hogan is a very, very, very talented sports entertainer and a pretty okay wrestler when he actually gives a shit. The problem is, is like you compare what he did with flair, right? To what he did with Sid. And it's just like, it's not good. And part of that is Sid being awful. Like, Sid is, Sid is super athletic, and he looks like a trillion dollars. He looks like if you were to chisel a champion out of stone, it would be Sid Vicious in 1992. Um, the problem is, is he wrestled like you forgot to unchisel his legs from the stone. Uh, and I think that maybe what you're seeing is Hogan being like, and th this is a something he said and it's hogan so you can take literally everything he says with a grain of salt but he doesn't know why him and flair didn't work out i am inclined to believe that again this is the mcmahon thing of just like not being able to see the forest from the trees not understanding what the future of the business is and not accepting that like hogan is still a great hand but he's not hulk hogan like i said before with peyton manning it's kind of like the peyton manning they should have treated hulk hogan the way they treated peyton manning in the last super bowl he won where he was basically like a decoy like have him face Sid. Have him give Sid the rub at WrestleMania 8. Don't have him be the main event of WrestleMania because he's Hulk Hogan. Because he's not Hulk Hogan anymore. He's a guy... He's a wrestling character. At that point, wrestling was no longer the thing that Hulk Hogan did. Hulk Hogan was now a wrestler. Does that make sense? And I think that this match in particular shows... And, and the subsequent fallout from it up to WrestleMania 8... Show that Vince didn't understand that. That, like... Hogan was no longer a transcendent figure in wrestling and that wrestling had to be built up around what Hulk Hogan had built. Yeah. And I think that in the early nineties, he had kind of gone from wrestling being a thing Hulk Hogan does to wrestling is the thing that Hulk Hogan embodies the worst aspects of. Right. I mean, this is like yeah. Hulk's post Arsenio and everything like this steroid trial, or this is just before the steroid trials, but I mean, all that is just about to happen. And, and he, he had kind of, you know, I think a lot of people in the who kept tabs on kind of the quote-unquote real entertainment industry were already kind of starting to laugh up their sleeves at him a little bit with his forays into movies. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that this is, I don't want to use the word desperation, but I think that the, you think of this run and it kind of culminates at WrestleMania 9, ultimately, right? But this seems to be that kind of turning point where the the conquering hero hogan is no more and the like scratch and claw from underneath while attempting to portray dominance hogan takes over yeah and it's it's a, not a great look and it's really i think the swan song of hogan in the wwf it's not even like a great match for him this is very much flair's match but i, I feel like this is the last performance he had in the wwf where you were like hey he put in like a decent amount of effort like you said he really busted his ass with flair he wanted they both wanted to make each other look good because they are friends or they were friends i don't know if they're still friends but like 
Flair and him got along. They had respect for each other. It wasn't one of those things where like Flair's coming in and he's like, fuck this guy. It's like one of the main people that got Hogan to come to WCW was Ric Flair. Like they had a good relationship. So this is more just like Hogan just being like, I'm tired. I'm getting old. I don't want to be doing this anymore. And I definitely don't want to be doing what Vince McMahon has me doing, whether or not that's professional, that's like a different conversation. But like there is this real like he's not mailing it in, but he is like looking for stamps. Does that make sense? No, it does. It does. I, I yeah, it's 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 hard to look at. And I even think that like it shows on his face in this show. Like I said, that pre-match promo, even the post-match exchange, he's just got this look where he's like. He's as big as ever. Like, he's humongous on this show, but he's just got, like, a little bit of, like, a, a bloat to his face and, like, his tan looks red rather than brown. You know, like, there, there's, there, it's very visibly, like, wearing mm. on him that it's, that it's not 1986 anymore. Yeah, and like I said, this is, um, this is the first match with actual stakes and it's the they need to develop stakes for the match because it's not just a showcase for Hulk Hogan anymore. He had won the previous two, so he's obviously the favorite going in. But there's this feeling that like, and in the commentary, and it's it's kind of Heenan, but there's this idea that he's kind of moved that the industry has moved past him. And I think that like this match, whether or not it means to is a pretty definitive statement about that. That, like, the Hulk Hogan character is no longer important. He no longer, like, is the focal point of the show, but he's also, like, a detriment to your main event if you put him there. And I think that's really what's weird for McMahon, is, like, no, he can't be in the main event anymore. He only worked when he was in really great shape and really gave a shit and the crowd was behind him. If you lose any of those three, you're in a two legged stool, like you're going to fall over. And and this, and what happens after up until, and we'll just transition into it. The 94 rumble, like the 93 rumble is kind of shitty. It's the first one that has the, you get the WWF title match at WrestleMania stipulation. It's also probably the worst one, and I thought it was going to be the same thing for 1994, but what you see in 1994 is they had transitioned fully from the Hulkamania era to the new generation. And that mentality that anything can happen in the World Wrestling Federation, it it's weird because they had just established the idea of those stakes of the winner gets the, Royal, uh, gets the main event at WrestleMania because they get in the world title match the year before and this is the first year they do a variance but i think it it really establishes that the new version of the wwf is in large part defined by the unpredictability that was the uh, the like is in complete opposition to what the hulkamania era was which was uh hogan flexes like hogan poses that's how we finish these shows hogan's at the end of them celebrating and now you have this idea that like literally anything you can happen, uh, think could happen, could happen. And it, it's a really smart way to transition from the 80s style of storytelling to what will eventually become the attitude style of storytelling, which is way more swervy. And it like takes the anything can happen to its logical and uh, extra logical extreme where like this is to me the like the sweet spot for that, like anything can happen in the WWF and it doesn't feel convoluted every time it does. Yeah. I think that this rumble is very much about like the depth and breadth of the roster. Like there's a few people like diesel, like diesel gets this big star rub, but as you say, he's like not the winner. Uh, but, but I think that in a lot of ways rewatching this rumble recently, like this feels like how rumbles are now to me. This rumble feels very much like the last four or five years worth of Royal rumbles to me. And that like, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's about how many people are in the rumble and like anybody who, any one of those people who has some sort of like outstanding ability or does something that it's, that's over, like that's going to happen in the match, but they are not going to last a long time. Like everybody who's got a cutesy thing, like does their cutesy thing. Everybody who's over, like has their moment to shine. 
Um, I like in that way, it reminds me a lot of the of the more modern matches. Although the flare match is worth watching because it's the flare match is one of the best matches of all time. The this match is worth watching because Diesel gets seven eliminations and he comes in about a third of the way through the match and really establishes himself as not just like a really powerful force, but a big man who can actually work. Like he's not, you know, like I'm trying to think of a big man, Matt Morgan. No, I'm kidding. Uh, He's not like a spectacular athlete or like a ballet. Like he's not a, uh, ballerina or ballerino i don't know uh but he ballet dancer that's what i was looking for he's not like a, it's not, ba- it's not ballet yeah it's not ballet. he's not like a ballet dancer but he's a guy that clearly like was an athlete at some point he really does a good job of selling of like looking like a guy that can carry a belt that can be an important part of your show in a way that hadn't been fully established this is kind of like the no we promise this guy is a legit uh, force to be reckoned with in the WWF. And they did so without giving him too much, at least at this point, too soon in this match. Like, they give him just enough. He doesn't, he isn't invincible, but he's tough as shit, and he's way bigger and stronger than everybody else. And it really does a great job of establishing that without making him... He's one of the, like, what you now see as, like, a Braun Strowman type, where he's an incredibly strong and smart, monstrous person. Monstrous person, but he's not, like, an actual, like, monster the way that, like, Kane or, to a lesser extent, a Kamala is. Yeah, I think that the Kane run that he has in the Rumbles in the Attitude Era, I mean, that was in very much, I think, kind of directly modeled after after this diesel uh thing right here i think that kane kind of was the direct inheritor of of that kind of spot in the rumble yeah and it's a good use of that kind of character uh, something we talked about in the previous episode is the ways in which people become stars of specific rumbles and that's this one is and we'll be talking about austin austin is like the pinnacle of that idea in part because he is constructed perfectly to win rumbles because he's not a target but he is like the problem with diesel is he eventually becomes a target in the match he becomes a target specifically for Shawn michaels who's supposed to be his friend um though at this point i think they had broken up more or less so what you see in this is them establishing, and they're using this match for storyline, but they're also using it, they're using it to establish character and also using it to establish like different connections between different people. Like for instance, Diesel in this match, it works over Bam Bam, or Diesel and Crush are working over Doink the Clown. Bam Bam Bigelow comes in and Diesel and Crush, like, let him enter peacefully because they know he hates Doink. So Bam Bam beats the shit out of Doink, throws him outside, like, military presses him outside, and they immediately try to eliminate Bam Bam. And what you see in that is that, like, they they establish that Diesel is a bad guy, right? Then they establish that, like, being a bad guy is not that great of an idea. And then they establish, like, hey, wouldn't it be great if he wasn't a bad guy by making him look, like, tough as shit throughout the entire match? It's a really great showing and not, example of showing and not telling that if done correctly, the Royal Rumble is in particular great at because of the nature and the understanding of both the stakes and the structure of the match. It, it insists upon itself in a way that's like narratively compulsory, like, or it moves the narrative forward is the best way is what I'm trying to say in a way that like, they don't have to necessarily explain it. You watch diesel throw out seven guys, you get it. But you also watch it all the way through and you understand without them saying like, man, it's being tough being a bad guy, like having little things where it's like they're telling like almost little stories within the larger story in a way that you would like in a chamber theater or uh, theater performance. It's like it's very uh, like Kabuki theater kind of uh, miming style storytelling that's done in a pretty compact space. And for wrestling, it's kind of impressive. And the great Kabuki is in the match. <laughs> yeah, he actually comes in right before Lex Luger, who uh, is the co-winner along with Bret Hart. And uh, before we get into the 97 Rumble, I wanted to talk about that. How do you feel about that finish? Because I hate it. 
I hate that finish because at least during the broadcast, they don't show the angle of both of their feet landing. So you just have to take their word for it. And it is fucking obnoxious. Like now they do a much better job of that shit, but watching it, it really felt like they were trying to get something over on you the way that they were like replaying everything. No, it was like they had the safe camera angle for if it didn't look great or if the timing wasn't good. And then the timing actually was pretty good. So it was like frustrating that they that they didn't have the definitive camera angle because I think it would have like passed muster or like been enough to to explain some kind of a follow up. But no, I hate the idea of a tie in the Royal Rumble. I believe you can have a draw in a match like you could have a time limit draw. You could have whatever, two guys beat the piss out of each other until they both collapse in the ring, whatever. You know, you can have a stoppage because both guys are bleeding, whatever. There's all sorts of ways that you can do a draw, and that's cool by me. You can have both guys' shoulders down on the mat and like a small package, whatever. All of those are good finishes to matches. You can have a fucking draw in a in an Ironman match, I think, and just say, okay, it's a draw. The champion keeps the title. I don't think you have to do overtime in that situation. But to get to my point here, sorry, they should have done some kind of overtime right here on the show i don't even think you can like wait till tv i don't think that you can go off the air with like an apparent just like sloppy weird tie where everybody including luger and Hart, just like look confused like i i think it's like it's like if the refs couldn't tell the angle on a huge play at the end of the super bowl and uh like the network was just like well, folks, uh, read about it in the newspaper tomorrow. They'll they'll sort this out somehow, but uh, what a wild, wacky finish. <laughs> that is exactly what it's like. And they basically sell it like that. And what's fucked up, and, and this is something you really notice watching the 97 Rumble, which we'll get into in a minute, is Vince McMahon fucking sucks at announcing Rumbles. It is so bad to listen to him because he constantly does the Vince McMahon thing of, I'm going to give away that this isn't the finish by pretending it's the finish. And you're like, dude. One, two, we gotta know we did it. <laughs> he still makes Michael Cole do it sometimes. Yeah, it's it's really bad news bears and the amount of times that someone has, he's been eliminated. And then he's like, oh, actually he hasn't. It's like, dude, how... How, you're in charge of this shit. You can't also be announcing the match. Like that is where it's at its worst. It's worst because he has to constantly pretend like he doesn't know what the fuck's going on where you can like kayfabe the announcers and the announcers are also much better actors in that sense of like, okay, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is what's gonna happen like vince mcmahon literally knows like they didn't do it the way that i told them to do it do you know what i'm saying like it's very you can't observe the thing when you already know it's going to happen in a way that comes off as naturalistic so the way he compensates is by constantly getting stuff wrong but it's almost like you intentionally did put the wrong answers on the quiz so people wouldn't know how smart you were so you didn't have to go to the hard class it's like to, to get to one of your kind of recurring themes, I think as an announcer, I think Vince really sold himself out too much. He wanted to create the illusion that he was not the owner of the company, but I think that he did that at the expense of like credibility. Yes, it's really bad and it's really noticeable in this match. It is much less noticeable in what I think is the best rumble performance outside of Flair, but in the the best rumble performance in the worst rumble i think would be the best way to describe the 97 rumble which is austin austin comes in at five at this rumble and is great the entire fucking time but the actual first four people in the match are awful and no one dave how many people at this show can wrestle uh like do you think total in the 30 men six maybe seven this was the like the bad side of the attitude era where like you remember all the names and you remember all the looks and then when they start touching each other you're like oh god like what it, what's wrong with this like what happened between like 1994 and like 2000 where like every no i don't want to say everybody like forgot how to work the care that people had taken in the territory era like we talked about in the Arn anderson episode that was gone and the pride of artistic performance that governs the business now hadn't yeah. kicked in 
there's just a lot of like stuff that's hard to look at. That's not Steve Austin. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I said to because I, again I watched this with Mark and Don, and I said Austin makes everything better because the first four people. I'm just gonna read off the first four people: Crush, Ahmed Johnson, Fake Razor Ramon, and Phineas Godwin. Those are the first four. Literally, not a single one of those four people can wrestle. Ahmed Johnson's has a great look. Everyone else looks like dog shit. Like they just shoveled dog shit in the ring and had it wrestle. Except for Ahmed. Ahmed looks like a million bucks. He totally looks like he should be world champion. And then you watch him do literally anything in this match and you're just like, oh God, is he having a seizure? What's happening? This is the worst thing I've ever... He's one of the worst wrestlers I've ever seen. And Crush is somehow significantly worse. (laughs) Crush is one of those guys who, like, it's wild that from the early 90s with his run with, like, Macho Man and doing all the Yokozuna stuff, like, all the way to the dying days of WCW, he's one of the, he's got to be one of the kind of the all-time leaders in terms of, like, getting pretty consistently pushed on TV, but just, like, never finding that adult big boy angle that was going to create this new version of himself that really meant something. He's one of those guys who, like, he came in being a big guy with a pretty good look who could almost cut a promo. And at the end of his career, he was a big guy with a pretty good look who could almost cut a promo. Yeah, and the almost is the key part. He is... Shaka-bra! He's really horrifically bad. Um, but it's still not as bad as fake Razor Ramon. Like, you watch... And they one of the last people in this match is fake Diesel, who is Kane. Kane looks so much better than Kevin Nash at the Diesel character. Like, Kane could have worked that character and probably been fine. Like, that's how good Kane was. Like, he's not, like, I don't think he's, like, a quote-unquote first ballot Hall of Famer in the sense that he's, like, an all-time great performer. But he was always really, really serviceable to good even in his earliest times, fake Razor Ramon is whatever the opposite of that shit is. Cause he like, it's this part. If you didn't know Steve Austin was coming out fifth, you would stop watching immediately after Phineas Godwin comes out. It is the worst start to any rumble ever by far. And then Austin comes out and it gets really good for certain segments is the best way is the best way to put it is like Austin is has a special power in these matches and it's that he's really fucking good at eliminating people because he doesn't kayfabe it. He literally just grabs them by the back of the head and throws them over the top rope. Or when they're not looking, he throws, he like pushes them and the person they're with over the top rope. He He actually gets underneath their legs with purpose, which nobody, for the greatness of the 92 Rumble, which almost nobody did that whole match. He actually gets under someone's legs while they're leaning over the rope and like dumps them over in a real reasonably realistic way yeah it is awesome he is a like we said about diesel he is twice as good as diesel like this is the best performance outside of flair i've ever seen in a match like this like meaning like a long battle royal where you're having to deal with a bunch of people like elimination chamber like this is like a definitive austin performance not just in the ring which holy fucking shit he was one of the best workers I have ever seen before he got hurt. And this match is like the best WWF example of it, other than the submission match. Uh, actually, I guess the two heart matches. This is just like pure, distilled, great Stone Cold Steve Austin, but he's working like stunning Steve Austin. It's He's the best wrestler of his generation. And it's insane to me that WCW didn't see something in him in this match alone. You're just like, no, he carries an entire match for basically 45 minutes straight. Like he is the star and he's more of a star than flair is because he's active, actively like fucking people up and throwing them out of the ring. Yeah, no, he, in this match, it's, it's, it's so tragic. I mean, SummerSlam is what, like six months approximately after this, yeah. seven months after this, he he gets his neck broken and it really changes his life and especially the way that he works in the ring. It's, it's almost tragic to watch this rumble 
and to see the quickness he moves around with, to see the wind that he has throughout the yeah. match, to see like the way that he flails his arms when he takes a bump, which he never really yeah. did after he broke his neck again. You know what I mean? There's like, he is beautiful An artist. in this match. And he's not like big and muscled up. He's pretty lean in this match too. Like he look, he doesn't look like the big, like 2000 Steve Austin. You know what I mean? Like he, he looks, looks like almost like Seth Rollins. Like he is in fucking amazing. Like if, if they had CrossFit back then, that's the shit he looks like he's doing. He just looks like an athlete who's just better and faster and stronger than everybody he's in there with. It, he, his look is off the charts. His work is off the charts. This is like the best. The, this is the rest the, the Michael Jordan, like the highest rated player you would have in a video game about wrestling would be this version of Stone Cold Steve Austin. He, he is fucking incredible. And the, the, the face work, the facials and stuff like that he does during this match and the character work he does during this match are even better than flares and flares are really great that it's just this next level of stone cold knowing I'm the future of the business. This is like the definitive like uh, statement match that I can think of out of even more so than Flair. Like this establishes Austin as like, no, seriously, guys, this is the guy. Like he eliminates 10 people and still stays a heel because of the way he eliminates the last like four. And fa- yeah, it's the fact that he, in fact, goes out of the ring. He does get eliminated, but yeah. but, but it doesn't. But nobody sees it. Like he, it's the, it's a huge heel win in terms of the fucking sanctity of the rules. Uh, no, it's great. I, there's the spot where he. I mean, it's one of the definitive wrestling moments that makes me love wrestling. And I talked about it in in the last episode. Is at one point he clears the ring. He climbs up and he sits on the top turnbuckle and he's going, just bring him out, just bring him out, whatever, which I'm sure, once again, like I said, his wind in this match is just like incredible. It's Uh, unbelievable. But he's saying, and then the music hits and it's Brett's music and he puts his hands on the top of his head like, oh shit, this is the one obstacle that I'm actually scared of. And it's like, it's, it's maybe one of the great definitive moments in wrestling history in terms of the heel going from the moment of like supreme total confidence to suddenly like their their ass is showing and there's a hole in their underwear kind of thing you know it's just brilliant he puts his hands on top of his head or throws his head back it's just so so good and once again like austin was always an amazing amazing performer but you just have him at both kind of his psychological peak and also really just still his his physical peak where there's so much more just subtlety to every movement because like I, my dad's had a major spinal surgery and it's like once you've had a major surgery high up in your neck like subtlety of movement is becomes like a much trickier thing and like his he's just so there the whole match and I I, that moment is 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 one of my favorite all time wrestling things. Yeah, that is probably one of the two or three best shots ever. Is him with his hands on his face like Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone, and it's also one of those things where it's like it it, it perfectly encapsulates like he's an incredibly good looking man who's a very good for a wrestler. I mean. If, and he's an incredibly good actor for a wrestler. And in that moment, you're like, oh. He looks like a star and he acts like an actor who would be a star. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it really like it, it's a perfectly encapsulating moment of him, of his appeal, I guess would be the best way to describe it from like a look perspective and from like a look perspective. Like he could really sell what he was doing. And the, the best part in you didn't totally get to this was that he then is just like, all right, well, fuck it. I have to deal with this. Like I, he, he goes from like, Oh fuck! I have to deal with Bret Hart to be like, all right, come on, you son of a bitch! Like, it's it is the thing that like Flair. We we did, we actually skipped over this. The Flair promo at the end of the '92 Rumble, the I uh, tell y'all with a tear in my eye. Vince hated that promo because it's a babyface promo. But if you watch the '92 Rumble, it's a babyface Rumble. This is like the perfect balance of babyface character, like babyface actions done by a person who we know for a fact has really um, sinister 
uh, like aspirations. So you can separate yourself from that and be like, no, he's still doing shitty things. Like he's eliminating people in ways that are not cheap, but like not heroic, but he's so good at it. We almost have to cheer his greatness. And that's like the level that it's almost impossible to get to unless you are the definitive character of your wrestling generation, like one of the two or three great characters in the history of wrestling. And like this, this is pretty much it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we used the word undeniable early with Flair and that part of that, the story of that match is that he is undeniable and, and part of that story being told is is Gorilla Monsoon, you know, even if he never actually endorses his tactics, he's he's saying, you know, you got to give it to him. He, he really is, you know, he must be one of the best kind of things. And I think that the same thing happened with Austin here where this was the moment that he had really proven on the on the biggest scale that he was undeniable i mean there's that like legendary ecw promo and stuff like all those hints that he was ready but i think that really this was the breakout and this was him becoming the man in the way that hogan was the man or rick flair was the man or becky lynch is the man now where it's like no they are the star in the company and I think the Royal Rumble throughout its history at its best, like in these situations, like we're talking about today, whether it's Flair or Diesel or Austin, I think it's where stars assert themselves as undeniable in one way or the other, whether as an undeniable wrestler like Hogan or Flair as an undeniable transcendent star, or just as an undeniable force in the moment, in this cycle, so to speak, like with Kevin Nash or Kane or even Roman Reigns to use like a more recent example, you know, that I, I think the power of the Rumble when it's done right is to create those just absolutely undeniable kind of genre defining moments, like even more so than WrestleMania sometimes. I really think it's it's the it's the forge where the stars are 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 made. Yeah. I that that's something where we're gonna be getting into in our next episode. Uh but yeah, that is kind of like it is more important intrinsically to the quality, uh, the our perception of the quality of the performer, I think, than WrestleMania. Because, like, WrestleMania is just one show that's like any other show, except it's WrestleMania. Like, the Royal Rumble is an actual achievement that you have to, like, earn. Um, and, and, and not in a meta sense, in a literal I just won this match sense. Uh, yeah, so now that we've solved the appeal of the Royal Rumble. Uh, I have a question I've been thinking about this entire time, and it's outside of the ones we mentioned, do you have a particular Royal Rumble that you feel like is an essential viewing? Um, Because we didn't pick that many this week because there's really only a couple and they're so long that we don't expect people to watch like five Rumbles, but I guess we are expecting them to watch five Rumbles. Do you have a specific year that you love in particular that you think either tells a different story or this uh, better version or a similar version of the same story we've talked about so far today. Well, this response might confuse or surprise some people because it's not exactly what I would call the height of the roster or a very creatively strong time. Um, But actually one of my very favorites is the 2008 Royal Rumble, which is the one where Cena came back way early from his tour and pack and was a legitimate surprise at number 30 and uh, wound up winning the thing coming out last, which I think at the time he was maybe the first person to do. Is that? I think so. It's either him or Taker. It's one of the two. Yeah, yeah. But so it was him coming at number 30, a huge surprise coming back way early from what everybody thought was a really, really bad uh, injury. But uh, that one's my favorite, actually. Like, Or, well, one of my favorites in the list of favorites, let's say. Because like I said, I think that they, they found a way to leverage that Royal Rumble magic. Even like when I said, maybe at a time where the roster wasn't that great, even though they had a lot of people, where the, the shows didn't feel especially hot, but they, they managed to find the most emotionally resonant thing they possibly could and, and built the whole Rumble around getting there and it peaked at the right time. And, and, and like we talked about today, some of these finishes, eh, if you're not going to put someone over clean in the Rumble, it gets a little weird. But like just John Cena goes out and, he, he wins the thing. I like it. It's straightforward. Great moment for everybody. Underrated Rumble. Yeah, I actually am going to mention the next year, which is the 2009 Rumble, which is the Randy Orton Legacy Rumble, uh, in part because it, it is actually the one to me that broke the Royal Rumble because, and you might see it with the New Day this year, though I, I highly doubt it. Um, basically what it is, is the leg- Legacy just comes in and murders everyone. 
they just systematically destroy everybody else in the Rumble once all three, Randy Orton, Ted DiBiase Jr., and Cody Rhodes are in the ring. And it's like this really cool thing to do with a really powerful group or like a, a like a stable i guess you would call it, but it was more of like a, a like a randy orton and his two henchmen but the two henchmen are really high quality performers it's i the legacy the legacy um group is one of my favorite stables ever but this match in particular is like the height for me of them as a cohesive unit. And like the next month, I believe they have a really good elimination chamber. This starts a lot of the like psychological stuff they'll eventually build to when they break up. And although they fuck that up, like this match for me is awesome uh, for my love of Randy Orton and for the like things you can do in the rumble that they hadn't done before, which is like three guys deciding like, no, our leader is winning this. And there's nothing you can do to stop us. And then actually getting away with it. It's like a really cool, I, I, I cool, like game breaker thing, I guess. Like it's not, it wasn't good for the long-term health of the rumble, but I think it was like a cool thing to see. I guess I probably sound like a monster. No, no, actually, you know, legacy. I, I really do think is, was, was a great thing or a thing that had the potential to be great. I mean, not like Manu and all that stuff. You know what I mean? Like that was, that was like when things were getting diluted or, but, but, but I think that the core group of the three of them, like they had this kind of perfectly similar, but also all of them, each of them also looked unique look, you know what I mean? And they, they really uh, were, were a great team together. And I, I think that, that rumble is an example of how the WWE almost had something really great right there. And they almost knew what to do with it, but just kind of uh, missed it by this much Maxwell smart kind of moment. Uh, So did you have anything to plug this week? Oh, just myself as usual. You can follow me on Twitter at Dave Wright's Junk. Uh, you can also check out some stuff I've contributed to recently at The Wrestling Estate. Of course, that's thewrestlingestate.com. There was our list of uh, top 100 wrestlers of 2018. I wrote profiles for a lot of them, including world number one, which was Pentagon Jr., uh, so, uh, that was very, very cool. I think our list has a great balance of the names you would think of, and maybe some of the names you're not thinking of, uh, maybe in an order that will surprise you. I'll tell you one thing that outraged and surprised me. I, I couldn't believe it, uh, was that like Jericho is in like the eighties in this list. So it's, it's pretty wild. There's some things you're expecting to things you're not expecting. I really, really suggest the list. Uh, also we have a, a Royal Rumble preview coming out, which, uh, by the time you're hearing this should still be relevant. And I'm sure there'll be Royal Rumble follow-up afterwards. So check me out on Twitter and uh, check out the wrestling estate. And you can check me out at the next year. That's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. You can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and the iTunes store. I messed it up the order this time. Messed it up the order this time. Now I'm Yoda, apparently. Um, so yeah, if there's uh, nothing else to say, uh, I guess uh, you don't have anything left, right? You don't have any hot pocket cast news for us? No, I feel like, unfortunately, as the people have probably noticed, it's like I, I did have a source at Pocket Cast, but I think, uh, I think someone might have found out about that somehow because they, they have been let go. So the flow of insider Pocket Cast information has been cut off. Uh, but I am working on it. I, I've got a couple of angles. You know me. Don't worry. Uh, but within the next couple of weeks, I, I should hopefully, uh, you know, knock wood, cross your fingers, God willing, et cetera, et cetera. I should be able to drop some more Pocket Cast truth bombs soon. Let me just say, after Vera distorting the belt to proclaim me the real world champion, I'm going to tell you all with a tear in my eye, this is the greatest moment in my life. When you walk around this world and you tell everybody you're number one, the only way you get to stay number one is to be number one. And this is the only title in the wrestling world that makes you number one when you are the king of the WWE. You rule the world. Think about it like that, Mr. Perfect. Guys, the I'm brain. not playing Woo! 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 Let's give a big one! Woo! Woo! You did it! I was never so impressed with anything I've ever seen in all my life! 
He went out there for over 60 minutes, never took a back step, took it to Hogan, took it to The Undertaker, took it to whoever got in that ring. That's why he is, hey, Bobby call now, the real world's heavyweight champion. We're not the kind of guys to say, we told you so, but we told you so. <laughs> okay, very good. Ric Flair, you have made world... Put that cigarette out. You have made World Wrestling Federation history here tonight. It's the greatest moment of my life. I want to jump. I want to party. But I got to tell you like this. For the Hulk Hogan's and the Macho Man's and the Pipers and the Sids. Now it's Ric Flair. And y'all pay homage to the man. Woo! <laughs> I love it! All right, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up. We hope you have enjoyed your Royal Rumble. Here among the poor, sad, despicable, oppressive, misinformed. Must be happy for you to fight your tongue secure.